At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. To the moon. Literally. NASA is spending billions of dollars to send robots and cargo to the lunar surface this year. The Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative, or CLIPS, enables science experiments and tech demonstrations as part of the Artemis program to land humans on the moon. Basically, NASA's buying lunar delivery services. We're the winningest most contractor uh, in the Artemis program, winning three missions to the moon. Intuitive Machines, which went public via SPAC in February, is one of the space startups touting CLIPS contracts. On this episode, co-founder and CEO Steve Altimus talks about the company's literal moonshot, and the rocket ship rise and subsequent fall back to Earth of the stock, whose ticker is Lunar, L-U-N-R, naturally. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. So you recently went public. I want to get into all of that and the details around that and why the decision to do that now. But first, I guess a little bit of background on intuitive machines. Yeah, we've been a... uh, engineering companies we founded in 2013 and you know it wasn't until we were uh, inventing uh, things for oil and gas for for the healthcare system and for aerospace because that's those are the major industries here in Houston uh, we jumped out of Johnson Space Center NASA's Johnson Space Center in 2013 and started the company and it wasn't until 2018 when the national policy, concerning space changed and uh, they basically uh, determined that the moon would be of strategic interest and that the United States should do everything in its power to accelerate um, the U.S. return to the moon and in a sustainable way. And that's putting boots on the moon. And so once that policy shift changed, we pivoted the whole company uh, towards uh, going after and focusing uh, this company, Intuitive Machines, on building the critical infrastructure needed around the moon, in and on the moon and around the moon uh, to support humans in the future. Uh, It's in our DNA. You know, we were NASA uh, human spaceflight engineering for for forever, it seems like. And and in our DNA, it was just we were compelled to uh, shift the company towards that national strategic interest. And you already have contracts with NASA. You're part of the CLIPS program, for example. Oh, yes. Uh, we're the winningest most uh, uh, contractor uh, in the Artemis program, winning three missions to the moon. So we're planning to fly in uh, June of this year, November of this year and April of next year. So we have an annual cadence of missions, three in a row, uh, two, the first two going to the South Pole of the moon for NASA, uh, which has never been done before by any government or any other uh, organization. So we're very privileged to uh have the opportunity to fly to the South Pole. It's like discovering Antarctica. It's it's equivalent to something like that. So we're very excited for that. And the vehicle's coming along nicely. The whole program is uh, shaping up uh, uh, to be a success. So uh, we're very excited about that. And so this is going to be a robotic vehicle. You said you're still on track for 
June. What do you hope to or expect to find at the South Pole of the Moon? Well, the first, uh, the key aspect is to land softly on the moon, uh, on the South Pole. You know, the, the South Pole is, is an undulating surface and uh, has mountains and, and craters and crevices. And so to land with precision and avoid hazards and touch down in daylight um, and then with Earth viewing and be able to communicate to and from Earth, from the moon and from our uh, autonomous robotic lander, that's the key. Uh, we do have some interesting science payloads. Uh, but really in the second mission uh, in November, uh, we'll drill for water ice. We, there's, a, there's a scientific interest in the South Pole in that it has the highest concentration of entrained water ice in the lunar soil, the lunar regolith. And so we're flying a NASA payload called the Prime One payload package, which is a, a Trident drill and then a, 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 a spectrum analyzer that looks at the volatiles entrapped in the soil as you drill down the tailings pile uh, will build up and we'll look at that tailings pile and see what the constituents are in that in the soil. And, and that'll be quite the discovery because it'll be the, the first real discovery of water on, on the moon. It's pretty incredible. Um, and it sort of speaks to, as you mentioned, the Artemis program, the fact that this, this situation is this program is moving forward. And with the idea of not only putting American boots back on, on the lunar surface, but this idea of going there and actually staying there this time. Yeah, so, you know, the Artemis program is made up of really four main thrusts, I would say. There's the precursor missions for science and discovery. That's what we're doing in the Commercial Lunar Payload Service program with NASA, flying for scientific interest and, and determining what the environment is like and what the constituents of the soil are and how, 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 it, how it looks and feels in around the South Pole or anywhere on the moon that we are destined to go. The next one is really for engineering the systems that are going to be needed uh, and reduce the technology risk in those systems that will be needed for human sustained presence. And then the third one is in uh, the lunar outpost that's orbiting the moon called the Gateway. And that's uh, kind of a, a human tended space station that's around the moon outside the gravity well. And then the last one is the Artemis proper, which is really the space launch system and the Orion space capsule. Uh, that you saw Artemis 1 fly late last year. Um, and then that will be uh, what brings the crew to and from uh, the vicinity of the moon. And then you'll see the human lander uh, take the uh, crew down to the surface. So uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of dollars, I think over $93 billion worth of funding from the US government flowing into returning humans to the moon and uh, for the purpose of staying there uh, for the long term. Um. In terms of, I, I guess, in terms of the way this works, we, we talk about NASA, we talk about some of these public-private partnerships that NASA has been on the forefront of, of forging where government is concerned. Um, when this June mission gets off the ground, and if it all goes according to plan, you'll be the first commercial company to land on the lunar surface, correct? Yeah, that's correct. We, um, <clears throat> we'll see if we're first, you know, the iSpace uh, lander is in route to the moon and, and they expect right. to touch down um, in April. Um, but the U.S. commercial companies, we're, we have a good shot of being first um, by launching in June. Um, we actually have a very energetic propulsion system. It's liquid oxygen and liquid methane. And that shortens our transit time to the moon down to about four, four and a half days. Hmm. Uh, other landers take anywhere from 30 to uh, 
60 to 90 days to, to wind their way out to the moon um, using the assist of the Earth's gravity. So um, we may launch later, but we'll get there sooner. Hmm. Um, you just went public. Yeah. Why go public now? Great question. Um, we had uh, been successful at pivoting the company to, um, you know, diversified space exploration company focused on installing the infrastructure around the moon. We went ahead and won uh, the CLIPS program, which is a $2.6 billion contract over, spread over 10 years that gives you the right to uh, fly and bid on and fly NASA missions of, of collections of payloads. We then won the first uh, task order under that contract. We want a second one and we want a third one. And we want some technologies that, that we needed to develop, uh, NASA needed to develop for the future of humans. And so we were in a good place with, uh, with revenue, with uh, uh, backlog in, in, uh, in our contracts. Um, and so it was time to really think about raising enough capital uh, to, to allow us to invest in the technologies that are gonna be needed for advanced systems. And so uh, with enough backlog on the, on, in the, on the books and uh, with the opportunity to raise the capital that would fully fund the business to profitability, it made a lot of sense. You know, we weren't actually trying to time this market at all. You know, the market's uh, been uh, not so favorable to, to DSPAC transactions um, after 2021 or so and in 2022, but it was the right time for us. And, you know, the, there's an urgency about returning to the moon. And, uh, you know, the, the, the executive policy, the national space policy to accelerate uh, a U.S. Uh, move towards sustainable human presence on the moon was really important to us. And so uh, this SPAC transaction served as a mechanism where we could get be public bring the visibility to the company that needed to at a time when we were going to land on the moon and, and land on the South Pole and discover water ice, share that experience with the retail investor and have give them an opportunity to participate, uh, which is what I've always dreamed of, is, is to expand beyond um, just the aerospace community and let more people think about participating in space exploration. And so it just made a lot of sense for us and, uh, and we're on our way. Very exciting. Do you think, I mean, clearly, if you just went public, you probably do. But do you do you think that the general public and in the investor base and not just institutional investors, but to your point, retail investors, too, um, understand more now about space and commercial space in the sector uh, than they did even just a few years ago? I think so. I think there's been a lot of uh, commercial activity. You know, NASA has been moving away from a uh, you know, the government run monolithic programs of the old days like Apollo uh, and even the international partnerships like in Space Station and moving towards a, a public private partnership you brought up where, you know, NASA buys a service from a commercial company. We like that model. This 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 non-traditional procurement or acquisition model is very effective. It gives us an opportunity to leverage our innovation and our agility as a company to move faster and help the U.S. economy and the U.S. government move back to the moon. You see it in commercial cargo resupply to the International Space Station. That contract's set up that way. You see it in the commercial crew uh, flights to the space station, you know, by SpaceX. And so the model seems to be working. And, and moving forward now um, with the moon, and we talk about um, how do we 
get back to the moon in a sustainable way, we're now doing it in partnership, commercial entities and governments going back to the moon. And so it's quite an exciting time. I think the, the general public is, is realizing that. And what, what I really want to do is let them know that the moon is upon us. Uh, we're actually building uh, landers. We've built a whole lunar program. We're putting communication satellites up, data relay satellites, navigation schemes around the moon. And so while we're thinking about it, it's important that the general public realize that that's, uh, that's today. It's not science fiction in the future. Mm. I want to get into all of that because you have uh, because you have a very aggressive um, growth and also diversification strategy in terms of that revenue as it does grow over the next couple of years. Um, but first, it's been it's been a wild ride for your stock. I, the ticker's lunar. I should note, which <laughs> is very appropriate. L U N R. Um, but it's been a wild ride. I mean, at one point after after the DSPAC happened and you were officially a public company, stock shot up more than something like a thousand percent. Uh, and I, I just wonder what, what, what your reaction was to that, given the fact that it's been uh, a very intense first couple of weeks of trading. It's been uh, quite exciting times. You know, I could be, uh, you know, very, very humble and put my head down and say, you know, we're all about executing and trying to get our missions off the ground and, and it'll speak for itself. Well, that will. And we're confident that that's going to occur. Uh, but it was exciting. We came out, um, you know, at $10 in the stock. Um, shot up and uh, it seemed to be driven by the retail investor, which is very exciting because I want more participation from the general public in space exploration as a as a personal goal of mine. Um, so uh, that was good, but uh, I try not to watch it and to keep our heads down and, and try to work on the things that are going to make us successful. Um, and that is executing on the plan to deliver, you know, a trained team, a lander that's ready to fly and ship to the Cape to fly on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, get that off the ground and touch down softly on our first mission with the second mission right on its heels, um, being developed and built uh, here in Houston and, and, and deployed um, in, in November to the South Pole again on a, on a Falcon 9 rocket. So a lot of work in front of us. Um, and, and, you know, as we execute, that'll, that'll be reflected in, in hopefully positive way in our stock price. Yeah. Um, so you're anticipating it looks like $88 million in 2022 in terms of revenue, $300 million in 2023, $759 million in 2024. Uh, and as I mentioned, um, while most of that is from Lunar Access Services right now, you have these other, these other um, businesses that are going to start contributing uh, to that top line over these next couple of years too. I guess just break down for me why you feel so comfortable about growing so quickly and that you can bring these businesses on uh, so quickly. We have a um, well understood and transparent uh, or line of sight uh, to uh, real revenues uh, through planned procurements from uh, the government. Uh, we, we participate in those and we have had significant capture activities for some of those contracts uh, ongoing for, for some time now, over a year. Um, some of those will be awarded in 2023, and, and we have those probability weighted to get us to that $300 million number. Um, and that creates a larger backlog for us that extends into 24 and into 25 and subsequent. So uh, those opportunities are well understood, that pipeline all probability weighted is well understood. And so we can speak with confidence about, um, you know, the, the opportunities that, that are in front of us, uh, what we expect to win 
uh, to get us to that. Um, you know, we'll see. Those awards are coming out here this year, um, and uh, we expect uh, announcements shortly. Some of them uh, during the SPAC pro process, we've actually won, and so we are. Um, we did win an engineering and science technology contract with the Johnson Space Center. Uh, we did win portion of the lunar spacesuit development. All those were not in the plan when we started, and so. Uh, there's considerable upside for us, and uh, we're, we're fairly confident we're going we're gonna to meet or exceed the expectations here uh, for 2023 as we move forward in the year. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of uh, where our optimism comes from um, and, and our ability to know this customer, NASA, and expand into uh, Space Force um, and that diversity of customer. And then uh, also with international partnerships, uh, now that we're flying, and as we touch down successfully on the moon, the international partners have shown keen interest in wanting to fly their payloads to the moon and are talking to us. You know, so we're speaking to people in Australia, Japan, uh, the United Kingdom, um, as, as a few, Italy. And all of those are interested in, in flying some form of rover or payload or orbiter uh, in, the, in and around the vicinity of the moon. And uh, we can be that delivery service for them. What's the long-term plan? I mean, right now it's the moon. You're focused on the moon, and over the coming years it's the moon. But, I mean, are you thinking about Mars development and colonization eventually? Are you thinking about other types of um, ways that your technology and, and your prowess can, um, you know, create, can, can go to other business models or other aspects of space as well? I guess what's the long-term vision? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question. If you think about it, um, I say this often is, is we're kind of like an expeditionary force, right? You land softly and establish a beachhead, immediately establish communications. And so uh, from there, you'll establish navigation. And then you start to bring up logistics and supplies to support the humans. And then you, you support the human de development of human systems. So all of that's in our plan. And what I hope is that starting with the moon, we develop a blueprint for how to commercialize a celestial body. So if we can then take that model that's been demonstrated, proven, created uh, around the moon to establish that infrastructure, it's certainly extensible to celestial bodies in the solar system. So as we think about Mars, as we think about the moons of Mars, or we think about uh, other planets and, and moons around other planets, that's where this kind of goes in the long run. So, uh, you know, that's, that's really the long-term kind of idea uh, but in the near term, what we're doing is, like I said, we can we have landed access services to bring that transportation leg. We have a lunar distance ground communications network established in six different countries around the world to give us line of sight communications with the moon uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, from Earth. Uh, we have plans on mission two and three to to deploy data relay communication satellites. Uh, and then subsequent missions, part of the proceeds from this transaction will actually help us purchase additional communication data relay satellites. So we'll have a constellation of data relay satellites around the moon that will then uh, be able to communicate 360 degrees around the moon, not just line of sight with Earth. And we add to that position, navigation and timing or navigation services. So think about the first lunar positioning system that goes in and around the moon. Now you have that basic infrastructure. Today, we're building infrastructure in a design study to put a power station, a nuclear fission surface reactor power station 
on the moon with the Department of Energy and NASA. Uh, later this year, that, that design contract will be competed for a development contract, which we'll bid on. Um, so now you have the utility of power systems to support humans. And so that's kind of the incremental steps in the near term to feed this broader blueprint that I'm talking about, about commercially establishing this uh, infrastructure. I do have a plan to bring back lunar material from the moon back to Earth. And we'll invest in the technologies for Earth entry, you know, sending an Earth ca uh, capsule back to Earth through the atmosphere and, 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 and solve those technology hurdles uh, in anticipation of uh, lunar material return missions in the, of the future. Okay, I have to ask, why does that matter so much? And how does it dovetail into the entire conversation around why returning to the moon and having a, a permanent presence on the moon matters so much? Well, we know already that um, from uh, uh, hyperspectral imagery of the moon that, that there's the high possibility of, of entrained water ice in the lunar soils. What other minerals, metals, um, what other things from the solar system are on the moon having been bombarded for billions of years you know what is the moon made of and of there's certainly interest from the scientific community to bring material back from the moon for study uh, you know the the small amount of material that was brought back during the apollo days only piqued the curiosity of scientists and so we think bringing materials back is important in terms of how you live and work on a celestial body in the future. So learning how to crack the regolith into its constituents, uh, harvest or harness the, the power of the regolith, all can be learned uh, by bringing material back from the moon and, and studying it on earth. And so that's kind of our, our goal. We think there's a scarcity value of that material. There's an intrinsic value in whatever's um, is, is making up that, that sample or that material return. And then there might be extrinsic uh, value and what can you make with that material? Um, so that's a, that's our interest, and we think that's necessary. We see that telegraphed by the National Science Foundation, and that they included in the decadal survey the the compelling mission to bring back samples from the moon. Um, and so we're responding to uh, what the interests are from the science community. I got to think there's going to be a lot more interest than just the science community, depending on what's. And what's in those samples that's coming back? <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, final question for you, because you're joining me from such a fascinating-looking space. Tell me where you are right now. I'm in uh, Southeast Houston, Clear Lake, in our Nova Control Command Center. Uh, this is a command center in a typical office building that we designed and built, and we are connected uh, with our con command consoles here. Uh, globally to our large aperture parabolic communication dishes around the world. Um, so those dishes communicate with our lander en route to the moon and all the way out to lunar distance. Um, and we bring data to and from the lander en route and back to this command center. And this command center then can um, send that data to our principal investigators, to the NASA payload scientists and our commercial uh, payload uh, uh, participants. So it's very exciting. We're doing training in here um, every week, uh, practicing uh, control of the spacecraft um, and operating the spacecraft and conducting this mission. Earlier this week, we actually did a lunar orbit insertion burn from uh, the control center, and we uh, practiced and trained the team to uh, execute a successful mission. So 
it's working well and we can't wait for it to be uh, used for real on the real mission. There'll be quite, quite the team and excitement in the room as you can anticipate uh, in June when we fly. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by following us wherever you get your podcasts and by watching our coverage on Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.